Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. Today's podcast is brought to you by newspapers.com, the ultimate destination for exploring the mysteries of the past. If you're fascinated by true crime, get ready to dive into the stories that made headlines. Newspapers.com offers a billion pages of historical newspapers from the U.S. and beyond, and you can search the entire collection in seconds. Their vast newspaper collection is a goldmine for eyewitness accounts, crime scene photos, news reports, and more. Whether you're interested in famous crimes or long-forgotten cases, Newspapers.com gives you a front-row seat to more than 300 years of history. For our listeners, Newspapers.com has a special offer. Use the code CUPOFMURDER for an exclusive 20% discount on your subscription. That's promo code CUPOFMURDER at Newspapers.com. Sign up today and start unraveling the true crime mysteries that keep you up at night. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Some people will never be happy. On February 20th, 1963, a woman was born who would go on to marry a man and together... The couple had anything a pair could want. Unfortunately for her, her husband was one of those men who were never happy. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Perry March's life, while not wrought with tragedy, didn't have the most cheerful beginning. He was born in 1961 to a Romanian Jewish immigrant and his Chicago-born wife, who, when Perry was about eight or nine, died mysteriously after taking pain medication for a head injury and accidentally overdosing. At least, that's the story his father told. After her passing, though, Perry was sent off to a boarding school in Indiana, where he excelled both academically and athletically. He graduated with honors, went to the University of Michigan for Asian Studies, and, despite some rumors that he could be vicious with his temper, met a woman named Janet Levine in the early 80s. Janet, who was born on February 20th, 1963, came from a prominent and affluent family in Nashville, and, after attending the prestigious University School of Nashville, went to the University of Michigan to study art. She was a passionate girl, both about her art and her involvement in her Jewish community, and when her roommate introduced her to Perry March, She fell in love hard, and she fell in love fast. 
Once Perry graduated, he went back to Chicago where he worked as a broker and Janet followed him to study at the Art Institute. Soon, Janet grew homesick for Nashville and made an arrangement with her parents that would make the move worthwhile for Perry, that they would pay his tuition at Vanderbilt University Law School in exchange for their move back to Tennessee. Once again, Perry excelled in school and he made a reputation for himself as a driven competitor and tough negotiator. Tactics that made his future as a lawyer look pretty bright. With the future secured, the couple married in 1987 after Janet, tired of waiting, proposed to Perry. Her parents gave them the money to buy a new house in an affluent area in Nashville, and Perry became one of the first Jewish lawyers to secure a job at a Nashville firm specializing in financial matters while Janet began work illustrating children's books. In 1990, the couple welcomed their first child, a boy named Samson. But the happy news was followed pretty quickly with the news that Perry's father, who always had financial issues, had gone bankrupt. Around the time he began dealing with his father's issues, a paralegal from his firm began finding a series of anonymous sexual letters on her desk that confessed to being a married man who, bored with his sex life, longed to begin an affair with her. She reported the letters and, with the help of an outside investigator and security cameras, the writer was named Perry March. He was confronted and given the choice to either resign quietly or to be fired. The paralegal quit. He was let go and agreed to pay her $25,000 over the next four years to avoid a sexual harassment lawsuit. Janet, of course, had no idea. Perry began working in his father-in-law's firm and the marriage continued to sour as the couple welcomed a daughter named Zipporah. Now, with two kids, the Marches needed to expand their home, and Janet took this opportunity to pour herself into building her dream house, which cost them about $650,000 to build. According to sources, she was incredibly difficult to work with and ran to her husband and father with every inconvenience or issue. So, with a stressed-out wife, an expensive house project, and financial issues stemming from his workplace harassment secret, Perry was a man on the edge. He started going out at all hours, going to clubs and spending his free time with other women, and even asked a client if he could move into his spare condominium to get away from Janet. They screamed at each other constantly, sometimes in front of their children, resulting in Janet's mother asking him to leave. And by 1996, it was becoming abundantly clear that a divorce was on the horizon. In fact, Janet and her mother made an appointment to meet with a divorce lawyer that was supposed to take place on August 16, 1996. Unfortunately, Janet wouldn't need the help of a lawyer. On August 15, 1996, two cabinet makers came to the March's home to do some warranty work. Janet watched them closely while Perry played with the kids. They finished their work, and as they walked out of her door, they became the last people to see Janet March alive. According to the story that Perry would later tell his friends and family, later that evening after the workers left, he and Janet got into yet another one of their screaming matches. He offered to go to a hotel for the night, but Janet said instead she would be leaving on a vacation alone. She packed up some clothes, got into her Volvo with a passport, $1,500 in cash, and a bag of marijuana. Later that night, Perry began making his calls to family, saying that Janet had finally left him. The next morning, when the housekeeper arrived, Perry told her to clean the house like normal, but to leave the children's playroom alone. 
And when she asked where Janet was, he said she was in California on a business trip. He said the same to the children's nanny when she arrived, who noted that normally when Janet was out of town and she watched the children, that Janet let her know ahead of time and left her detailed instructions, which she failed to do this time. The last person to arrive and question Janet's whereabouts was a woman named Marissa Moody, who brought her son over for a play date with Samson, only to get there and have Janet not home. Perry allowed the boys to play, and when she was in the home dropping off her son, she noted that Samson was jumping up and down on a rolled-up oriental rug just outside of the playroom that the housekeeper wasn't allowed to clean. A rare sighting in Janet's home as she preferred the wood floors to be exposed. Once the boy was picked up, Perry took the kids to his in-law's home and, together with her father, went to the airport to search for Janet's Volvo. They came up empty and, by the 17th, her mother wanted to call the police. But Perry convinced her to wait, claiming that Janet left him a honey-do list that would last about two weeks, which to him meant she intended to return in 12 days. That if she was still missing by then, they would call the police. But Janet's mother even thought this list seemed suspicious. Janet usually wrote out her list, and this one was typed out in a format more similar to Perry's writing. It also didn't contain any information about the play date or the schedule for the housekeeper and the nanny. And when asked by her brother to see the list, Perry drove frantically to his house so he could pull up the list before anyone else got in the house. And Mark had to knock on the door a few times before Perry would even let him inside. There was also another file on the computer that contained six pages worth of times that Perry had wronged Janet that she intended on bringing to court. Janet's family's worries started to grow as the list started to dwindle and Samson's sixth birthday approached. Janet didn't come home for her son's birthday, and shortly after giving conflicting stories about where she was, Perry sent his father back to Chicago. When asked why, he said his dad, quote, had a big mouth and tells everything. Janet March was finally reported missing on August 29, 1996. A week later, Janet's Volvo was finally located at an apartment complex five miles from her house, and the dust and pollen that had accumulated on it indicated that it had been there for quite some time. The passenger seat had been pushed back, the driver's seat pushed forward, and Janet's sandals carefully positioned inside, and her suitcase was packed with only sundresses. No undergarments, no toiletries. The same day her car was found, Janet's parents hired a private investigator, and after she questioned a number of people living in the apartment complex, Perry called her furious and demanded a list of every single person she spoke to. Things were unraveling pretty quickly. Perry took his children to Chicago to celebrate Rosh Hashanah, and police took the opportunity to search the March's home. When they did, they found the computer's hard drive had been forcibly removed and could not be located. Neither could her body, even after extensive searching involving army helicopters, divers, cadaver dogs, and thermal imaging devices. In early 1997, the Nashville scene ran a two-part article where it outlined the police's theories on the case. According to their story, investigators believed that Perry killed his wife most likely on accident through moves he learned as a black belt in karate. He panicked and fabricated the list, possibly wrapped her body in the rug that Marissa Moody saw, 
and eventually carried her to the Volvo, which he parked at an apartment complex and rode his mountain bike back to the house. Perry March was officially a suspect and he ended any and all cooperation with the police. And when his in-laws won visitation of the children, Perry fled with them to Mexico where his father had retired. While they fought to get the kids back, Janet was officially declared dead in 2000. And in late 2004, detectives and prosecutors began secretly presenting evidence to a grand jury against Perry Marsh. In August of 2005, Perry was arrested at his restaurant in Mexico and extradited back to Tennessee. On the plane ride to Nashville, Perry told the detective accompanying him that if they could guarantee he would only serve seven years, he would plead guilty. That he was ready to, quote, close this chapter in my life. But once he was in jail awaiting his trial, Perry began a friendship with a fellow inmate and attempted to pay him to kill Janet's parents. The inmate went to his lawyer and a sting operation was set up that not only led to Perry's re-arrest for soliciting a murder, but his father's arrest as well. While in a Mexican prison, Arthur made a deal with the prosecution and turned the whole case on its head. He said that he helped Perry move Janet's body to Kentucky and was ready to testify against his son in exchange for a reduced sentence. While the prosecution originally agreed, Arthur was unable to recall the details needed to find her body. His deal was rejected and he died in a federal prison shortly after beginning his five-year sentence. Despite having no body, Perry March was charged and convicted of his wife's murder in 2006 and sentenced to 56 years in prison. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on February 21st. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there is always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.